All right, our scripture passage this evening comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children's anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters, do the same to them, and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. These are the words of our Lord. <clears throat> hey, in case you haven't noticed, um, for the record, uh, we live in a time of the great uh, privatization of religion. Here's what I mean by that. When, you know, when I was in college, people used to actually fight about religion. You used to get in arguments about whether or not you were a religious person or not. Now you can be religious as you want under one condition, that you keep it to yourself. It has to stay in a very careful, uh, close sort of uh, section. It's not allowed to sort of get out as far as that's concerned. Um, and of course, as usual, we have our own religious version of this as well, um, when we look at life as if it can be separated into sort of religious activities over here and spiritual activities over there, I'll get more into this as we dive into this today, but I, I simply want to, to recall the fact that I remember being in college and in high school and implicitly being taught that there were certain activities out there that were genuinely spiritual. Uh, you know, things like Bible studies, church, quiet times. But then there were these other things that were kind of worldly activities, uh, stuff like school, uh, my job, my girlfriend, uh, even recreation. Those were secular. Those were worldly activities. You see what I'm saying? In other words, even Christians will fall into this idea that religion is fine as long as it is a spoke on the wheel of your life, not anything that comes close to the center. Look, the passage, though, that James just read to us, I want to submit to you tonight actually defies both of these tendencies. Look, the Christian life, if you're wondering about Christianity, the Christian life itself cannot be understood until it begins to permeate the most basic relationships of life. It will always go out in that way. Last week, we looked at this very fundamental relationship that we know of as marriage, this idea of marriage. And this week, what we see is the gospel also has applications to other normal relationships that we have, like our families, right? The, the relationship we have to our parents. Uh, we find out that it has application to our jobs, uh, to the, where the, the workplace even. And the underlying message is that until, and this is where Ephesians is going, that until there has been healing in these very fundamental relationships of our lives, then the reuniting of the whole universe under the one head, Jesus Christ, which is the theme of the book, will honestly never happen. In other words, what Jesus came and did is, is, is he broke down this separation of life between spiritual activities and between uh, secular activities. 
It all comes under one head, even Jesus Christ. Okay, so look, I want to look at these commands that Paul gives to us under three headings tonight. First of all, I want you to notice the simplicity of the commands. I'll get to that in a second. I want you to notice the wisdom in the commands. And then finally, we'll look at the motivation for the commands that he gives to all these various relationships. All right, look, this first point I got, not surprisingly, uh, from Sinclair Ferguson. And I'm, I get so excited about this idea that, bear with me, I'm going to try to get through it as clearly as I can. But Ferguson brings out the fact that there's really something incredibly simple about these direct directives. And you would not be blamed if you were sitting there tonight and thinking about your family, right? Thinking about how utterly complex those relationships are between you and your parents and your siblings and whoever else. And thinking to yourself, that's it? <laughs> Two verses? Really, Paul, that's, that's all you have for me. After unloading all this amazing theology, I get... Two verses? <laughs> In other words, you, there would be a tendency to look at this and say, this seems hopelessly and embarrassingly brief. Why? Well, there's something to that that I think is worth helping us launch into this broader concept that simply goes like this. Christianity is a religion that functions in simplicity. That's the idea I want to sort of establish to you this. The, the, the manner of the way in which the gospel works in you is fundamentally simple. And I would say it's actually very unique to Christianity. This is the way Christianity works. It says, look, here's how I want to bring change into your life. Here's an idea. Children, obey your parents as to the Lord. Boom. And it simply sets it inside of your life as a principle, as an idea. It doesn't come to you with this big long list of everything that you're supposed to do and everything that you're not supposed to do so that you don't ever have to, ever have to think about it. No, no. What, what Christianity does is to give us the big picture. It tells us to, and, and, and gives us ideas, concepts that kind of float around our mind with the assumption that we're going to be working through that. We're going to be praying about it, that we're going to be studying it, that we're going to interact with it for, for application in everyday life. Look, in every other world religion, and bear with me now, you know that this is not about shooting down other religions, but it's, a, it's an attempt to sort of establish the distinctiveness of Christianity. But I would submit to you that in every other world religion, when you have a sacred text, you, you, you have generation after generation that has to comment on that text. For those of you that grew up in Jewish homes, is this not what the, uh, the Jewish Mishnah is about? Or for those of you that grew up in Eastern religious homes, is this not what the Hindu uh, Vedas are? In other words, there's constant commentary to try to help people understand what the thing actually said. Christianity doesn't deal with that, us that way. Christianity looks and says, I'm going to simply get an idea inside of you, and I am going, God says, to entrust you with work. <laughs> work it out. Think through it. And I've been trying to think of an illustration of this. And I'll be honest with you, I don't think that this shows itself any more vividly than when we wrestle with the question of uh, God's guidance. You know what I'm talking about? There's a lot of Christians that wrestle through this idea of like, what does God want me to do? How can I discern less God's will? And to be honest with you, it is almost accepted Christian practice in our day to wait for God to tell them what to do, and I always struggle how to describe this, through this, um, 
this inward impression that sort of washes over me. And I think to myself, all of a sudden I was faced with this decision and I just knew. And we describe it with things like, and the Lord just told me that I should dot, 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 whatever. Um, Look, y'all, for people like me, if you're someone who hears the voice of God on a regular basis, I don't want to fight with you about that. But I'll say this, for someone like me, I found myself in a very hopeless maze when I was trying to like divine the sort of secret tea leaves of my own feelings. Does anybody know what I'm talking about here? Like where you're constantly thinking to yourself, wait a minute, was that God's will? I think I felt it. Am am I supposed to go talk to that person? Look, y'all, not only is that hopelessly subjective, But oftentimes I see people who are oftentimes the most preoccupied with that inward sense of God's movement that they do so to the exclusion of the the clear sense of his movement. This. And it's not the way Christianity works. Christianity looks and says, here's the principle, now work it out. Keep revisiting the principle, live with it, remind yourself in it, study it. But let's keep working it out together. You know, I think one of the reasons for this is, is that we don't want to think. <laughs> this is, uh, this is uh, one of uh, Keller's constant sort of uh, 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 mantras. That the truth of the matter is, is we want it to be easy. We want to, for God to tell us what to do. Just show me, Lord, what you want. And what we don't ever uncover is our real motive in that, which you know what it is? So that if it goes wrong for me, I can blame you. Look, God asks in his absolute sovereignty for you to participate with him in that sovereignty. Now, for those of you philosophy majors in here, you're freaking out. Don't do that. I just want you to live with the beauty of that mystery. That God looks and says, I want to include you in my providence. You are not just a cog in the machinery of my providence. I want you to be a part of this. Here's a principle. Now just go work on that. And to me, the very simplicity of the commands hint at that. I'll give you the final example. I'll go into another point. Galatians chapter 2. Paul is in the churches in Galatia, and he notices that even his own Jewish friends, the apostles, Peter, James, all the rest of those guys, are, are being racist. You ever read this story? Uh, you, you know, they're trying to take care of the poor that are there in their area. And all of a sudden they notice that Peter and the rest of the apostles are serving the Jewish widows first and the Gentile widows second. It's racism, straight up. And Paul goes up and confronts him to his face. But, the, but he does not confront them by saying, you are a terrible, awful racist and you ought to go to hell. It's not what he says. What Paul looks is, and here's the quote in the verse in Galatians 2, he looks and says, I confronted Peter to his face because he was not, and here's the phrase, acting in line with the gospel. Ooh, that's a really great way to put it. (laughs) In other words, it's saying that the gospel has lines. There are things that project from the truths and the principles of the gospel that you that you are capable of getting out of alignment with. And God is simply saying that those behaviors that are incompatible (laughs) to the grace of God in the cross simply have to be purged from our life. 
That's the, that, that's the bottom line. And it's going to begin by us taking these, the simplest of commands and massaging them into our own hearts. Look, y'all, rather than start to grow panicked about what God wants me to do, dive into his word and begin to see how that applies itself through the rest of it. All right, that's the first point, the simplicity of the commands. I thought that was kind of cool, worth mentioning. Second point. But also Paul throws in all kinds of wisdom. There is so much wonderful practical wisdom for these three different areas, right? He talks about being children, talks about being parents, and he talks about being a slave. Now bear with me on that last one. We're coming to this. Let me, let me run through what Paul gives as the directions to those three groups. Number one, to children. Hey, by the way, clearly Paul is talking about little children here. The word there, uh, children, that's translated in chapter 6, is, is, is the word for little children. Um, but there's a sense in which even when you're a grown child, especially in the time in which you're in, you're still somewhat dependent upon your parents. But it's interesting that Paul quotes from the fifth commandment in the Ten Commandments to illustrate his point. So let's look at that too. See, in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, children, little children, obey your parents. But in the fifth commandment, he says to honor your father and your mother. I like that word honor because it's very, it's very helpful for me. The word there in Hebrew is the word kavod, which means to give weight to something. It means to um, grant it heaviness. Take it seriously. And so the command is basically saying this. Your job as a child is to give weight to your parents. Proper importance. And I'll be honest with you, I think this is incredibly balanced teaching. Look, notice that it does not say in the fifth commandment that we are to obey our parents for life. Bear with me for a second. This is going to sound weird. The truth is there are all kinds of stages that you are going to go through as a child of your parents, tons of them. The question of how you honor them at any stage of your life is going to depend on what stage you're in. When you are a little child and you don't know any better, what does the Apostle Paul say? Obedience. Do what they tell you. Follow their direction. They'll keep you safe. They'll keep you out of the street. You know, they'll make you look both ways. They'll make you eat relatively healthy food, right? Obey your parents. But the older that you get, the idea is that you're supposed to be becoming independent of them. And so therefore they're saying, honor. The older you get, you're to honor them. In other words, there are all kinds of parents out there. There are good parents and there are bad parents. I've talked with many of you about your experiences with your parents. But it would not be honoring to your parents to obey them if they were still trying to emotionally manipulate you to follow their dreams for your life and not yours. Let me say that again. For some of you, you went, wait a minute, what did you just say? <laughs> it would not be honoring your parents to obey them if they were still in the process of emotionally manipulating you to following their dreams for your life and not yours. Don't get me wrong, we get direction from our parents. But for many of us, we are still so emotionally tied to our parents in one direction or the other. Some of us are deeply sort of dependent upon our parents. We're afraid to make any move at all without them. That's pathological. Others of us are so angry with our parents that we're rejecting and reacting from them. Guess what? They're still controlling you. Your parents can control you whether you're angry at them or whether you're absolutely dependent upon them. And so Paul looks and says, obey them when you're little. But as you grow older, the command is to honor them. Give them proper weight. So how do you do that? A couple thoughts. Number one, speaking as a parent, 
I would say don't stereotype your parents. This is one of the frustrating things for a lot of parents when I hear them talk. We oftentimes look at our parents, especially in college, as if they are static creatures. They're just kind of what they are, annoying. Um, But guess what? Your parents are still capable of change. I know my parents would say that the last 20 years since I've been out of college have been a time of extraordinary change for them in their marriage, in their own spiritual lives. Guess what? God is still at work in your parents. Don't write them off because you, you see them not changing. Secondly, you got to forgive your parents. Now look, i got to be really careful about this. Forgiveness does not mean to allow them still to trample on you emotionally. And some of you, I've talked with a lot of you who are in very pathological homes where there's abusive relationships because of parents struggling with anger, sometimes even physical, sexual, psychological abuse. I'm not suggesting that. Those are complicated issues. Come talk to me about that. But I will say this, for many of us, we're dragging around grudges against our parents that don't need to be uh, drug around. Look, y'all, learning to forgive our parents, there's... You've heard me say this before. There is going to come a day when Anna Grace and Caroline and Luke have to forgive Ginger and I for the way in which we raised them. And doggone it, we better pound that into our heads now (laughs) to be prepared for the time so we can be humble to them when they come to us and confront us on those things. It's time to learn to forgive your parents, y'all. Let them off the hook. Treat them like they're a friend. Which brings me to the third one. Grow in your independence. Hey, in your parents' best moments, ladies, even though I know she still wants to inject herself into your life, in your parents' best moments, they raised you to leave. This always offends people every year that I say it, but I'm going to say it again. Anna Grace comes up to me, Daddy, who do you love more? Do you love me or do you love Mommy more? My answer is, I love Mommy more. And everybody's like, oh, no wonder his kids are so screwed up. (laughs) that's how you make preachers kids (laughs) the reason why I say that is because guess what they're going to leave one of you one of you boys is going to ask for my daughter's hand in marriage one day it's a vivid horrific thought stay away from my daughter's But in that moment, they're going to go away. They are. Same with my son. He's going to move away. This is the permanent relationship. Till death us do part. That's not the case with my children. Hmm. Therefore, a a, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife. I'll be honest with you. For the first five years of marriage, most of the problems that I see are leaving and cleaving issues. Buckle up, kids. It's time to get independent. It's time to become financially independent. Put yourself on a budget. You heard me. And it's not a budget that if you can call your dad up 10 days before the end of the month and be like, Daddy, I'm out of money, please. That's not a budget. (laughs) Grow in independence and honor your parents in that way. Okay? That's the first relationship is children. Number two, Paul also gives interesting information towards parents. And I'll be honest with you, I'm very interested in this. And it's not just because I'm a parent. I think it ought to be interesting to you as well. Of all the things that Paul could have said to parents, why fathers don't provoke your children to anger? Does that strike anybody as a bit of a random sort of idea? Why would, why would he say and pick that out of all the list of things? What he's saying is to dads, is dads, don't frustrate your children. Don't provoke them. Don't 
purposefully antagonize your children. How do fathers do this? I think this is a good question for future fathers and mothers in the room. Of course, it's all at me right now. Look, I think you antagonize your children when you're afraid of them. There is a whole lot of fear that comes into your life when you have a child. Um, And what Paul is saying is, is it's very easy to begin to relate to your children on the basis of that fear in hoping that either A, they don't embarrass you, or B, um, require something of you that you won't have. Um, we 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 did sort of an unofficial poll years ago with some of the RUF campus ministers to try to ask the question, that every parent wants to know. Okay, for parents listening on the podcast, here is what you're listening for. All of your parents want to know, how is it that I can know less that when my kid goes off to college, he'll embrace our values? How can we be assured that they'll share them? And what's funny is, is we started trying to do a little unofficial poll, like what's the real distinctiveness? Look, it wasn't private school versus public school, for heaven's sakes, all right? It wasn't... (laughs) It wasn't whether you put them in timeout or whether you spank them. Uh, it wasn't like breastfeeding versus bottle feeding or something like that. You would be amazed at the kind of things that people will tell you. Well, you know, if you put them in timeout rather than, you know, whatever. It had nothing to do with that. What we found was is the students that embraced their parents' values, ready for this, were the ones who felt like they could talk to their parents, like their parents were friends, like their parents were that they were going through this together, that by the time that you got to be 18 years old, they knew that their job was to give broad boundaries. And the more responsible you were with those boundaries, the more responsibility they would give you. Now, some of you are looking going, you're right. I need more. It needs to be broader. (laughs) No, I've seen your life. You need more boundaries. Trust me. But, the, but, but we frustrate our children when we, when we fear them. That's my first thing. The second thing is we frustrate our children when we allow them to do stupid things. Okay? You frustrate our children when we, when we look in. I mean, notice Paul looks and says that there's an admonition that we're supposed to do. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What's he saying? He's saying that it is a supremely unloving thing to not give children boundaries. That is mercilessly cruel. And for many of you, that's why I would suggest you that it is cruel to you to have a blank check from your parents to be able to spend whatever it is that we want. And I have people sit in pre-marriage counseling being like, could you explain what that whole thing, like an interest charge on a credit card, what is that? They're getting ready to get married. And you don't know what simple interest is on a credit card? (laughs) You need boundaries. And your parents are there to do that. And you can frustrate a child by not giving them that discipline. Look, the opposite of love is not hate. You do know this, don't you? The opposite of love is indifference. When I cross the will of my children, I am enacting oftentimes a very, a very freeing thing by keeping them away from something that will hurt them. That's how we keep them frustrated. Thirdly, we frustrate our children when we do not respect their differences. You don't realize this now, but you are growing up with certain blinders, certain sort of myopic views of the world, which happen to be the way you view the world. Well, guess what? You're very likely to have children that don't see the world that way. We frustrate our children when we try to force them into the mold of our own stereotypes for them. And Paul looks and says, don't do that. 
Don't do that. And the rationale for all of this that Paul gives us comes actually in another book in Colossians chapter 3. In verse 21, he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. Oh, there it is. There it is. You want to know what it's like to be a good parent? The way to be a good parent, and I'm convicted even as I say this, is to become a person who shovels encouragement into your children's lives. Because they are bottomless pits of it. There's, some of your parents have not figured this out. And they don't realize that they sort of thought that their role was to be the one who sort of brings in enough discouragement. Mm-mm. Over and over and over again to find ways to encourage, encourage, encourage. Okay, so parents, thirdly. Fourthly, uh, thirdly, talks about slaves and masters. This is the last relationship. Slaves and masters. Now look, don't get all hung up on the questions of slavery. Was Paul sort of supporting slavery here? No, he was not. Slavery at that time was overwhelmingly prominent and it was a very complex institution. Um, Paul is not implicitly condemning or affirming the system at all. That's not his point. Uh, It is not the same as early 18th century uh, uh, man stealing, uh, early 19th century uh, man stealing as we had in our country, okay? It's not the same. But what he's saying is, is we want to establish how we are to live with our jobs as workers who work for somebody. A couple thoughts here. Look, I find it interesting, first of all, that Paul is talking about work at all. You know, a lot of religions think that work is an evil. Have you ever read the, um, uh, the Greek myth of Pandora's box? You know, Pandora opens up the box and evil escapes from this box that, uh, uh, that she wasn't supposed to open. You know what one of the evils was that came out of that box? Work. That is a totally unchristian view. The Christian looks and actually sees that work was established, that we were supposed to work the uh, fields, uh, as we were, before man fell in sin. Work is a good thing. This is sort of the answer to the question, what are we going to do in heaven? My assumption is we're all going to have jobs. (laughs) But it'll be jobs without the problem of sin, right? Uh, Without the sort of curse of sin in the midst of it. So we can take joy in them and do them well and reap the fruits of our service. Um, I'll be honest with you, Christians who don't understand this will oftentimes be very, feel very guilty if they didn't go on the mission field, right? And I'm only pleasing to God unless I go in the mission field. Now, don't get me wrong. <laughs> There's an equal and opposite problem <laughs> where you look and be like, woo, thank goodness I don't have to go in the mission field. Look, y'all, was, we want Peter to come up and talk to you so that you can look and be like, I could do that because you can. But here's the deal. God looks and says all legitimate work is God-pleasing. Dive into it. Engage in it. Rejoice in it. Let it be something where that is your mission field, where you show Christ's sovereignty. Secondly, Paul looks and says he's trying to emphasize the quality of work done. In other words, he comes in and says, I don't want you to be the kind of people who do it merely for eye service. At least that's what I've got in the ESV. I don't know what your translations say. That word only occurs once in the New Testament which is a little bit weird. We're not really sure what it means. And so they translate it very literally. I service is what it literally means. But to be honest with you, I don't think it's that hard to figure out. Paul is saying, don't just do your work because you know your boss is watching. You know know what I'm talking about? Um, There was an old study that I studied when I was in uh, college, when I got my, (laughs) my degree in communication. My father was super proud to know that his son majored in communication. What is that, son? I have no idea. And the funny thing is, is I don't either. And I was a major in it. So 
But I remember us talking about this study that was done in some um, plant in the Northeast back in the um, early 1900s where they were studying the effect of certain work conditions on plant workers. And they noticed that as long as the plant workers knew they were being observed, their productivity went up, right? But when they knew that they weren't being observed, they slacked off. That's what Paul is talking about. I service. He says, look, I don't want you doing what you do just because you know there's someone's approval that you're trying to earn. Ooh, does that sound familiar? You see, Christians don't do that. You want to know why? Because we have already earned the ultimate approval of the only person that matters. That Jesus Christ has in us, in the cross, utterly approved of us, apart from our works, right? Apart from our work. And gentlemen, please buckle up for how much of a lure your career is going to be to rule your soul. Your career will tyrannize you for the rest of your life as being a thing that says, here you go, gentlemen, define yourself by this. It's the second question everybody asks you. First question is, what's your name? Great. What do you do? The desire, the, 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 the tendency to want to define ourselves by that is so strong. And the gospel comes in and says, mm -mm, don't do it for eye service because you don't know why? You've already earned the approval of the only one that matters. Look, y'all, consider this last thought, and I'll finish with this. In the midst of all these commands, there's a wonderful motivation. We not only see the simplicity of them and the wisdom in them, but notice the motivation for them. Throughout, he's saying, children, obey in the Lord. Parents of the Lord, slaves, obey as to Christ. You see, what Paul sees is that every area of life is a revelation of God in Christ. The joy of the gospel is pervasive. It goes through every single area of our life. And you want to know how it does, how that principle works in us? Look at the very last thing that James read in verse 9. And yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. Oh, I love that. <laughs> Look, this is the motivation for why we obey our parents, for why we try to be good parents and not frustrate our children, for why we work as to the Lord and not for eye service. Because with this God, there is no partiality. Oh, I love that thought. I'll be honest with you. We live in a generation, I was reading a, an article in the New York Times this week, and you know, where do they get these people who do these studies on youth music? And the idea behind this was is that your generation's music is incredibly narcissistic, right? Totally absorbed with yourself and telling yourself that everything is okay, that you're great. <laughs> you're a firework. <laughs> and, and sparks come out of your chest as you say that, of course. It's amazing. Um, <laughs> bear with me. In other words, there's this incredible sort of sense in our culture of wanting to say, see, see, I distinguish myself. I, I'm different from the rest. I, I, I'm somebody. And Paul looks and goes, there's no partiality with God. I love this thought. It may very well be what our culture needs is to look around and be like, yeah, I, I'm really not the only one. The truth of the matter is, is we all are, are, we all are on equal footing with this God. And what that means is, <laughs> for every one of us, even the best of works that we've done haven't sort of measured up to his standard. 
So lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand him him and him alone gloriously complete. But also for even the worst of us, we can look and say that God is not measuring me and looking at me any differently than if I was the best Christian in the world. It's equal footing to know that not only does he look at us the same, but he also deeply loves us the same. I love that thought. There is no partiality with this God. Swallow that, embrace that, and watch the lines of the gospel go throughout every area of life. See what you don't discover. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you then allow us to be able to do that and to see that? What a what an easy concept to say, but what a hard thing to, to grasp. Because we spend all of our time so frantic about distinguishing ourselves from others that we fail to realize that there is such a joy in being able to lay down all of our anxiety to get off of the treadmill of trying to perform for you, for ourselves, for our parents, for, for my children, for my boss, that we can look at you and stand in you complete might actually transform us. Plant that this evening, Lord Jesus, inside of our hearts and help us maybe see the world the way in which we would, didn't see it when we came in. And help us be changed because of it. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.